it's a it's quite a task and a burden each week to know that you're standing in front of people um, preaching the word of God and that everything that comes from your lips uh, is 100% truth and so um, there have been times in the past when I've had people that have pointed out uh, mistakes that I've made and I am flawed I am a human being but I just pray that as you listen today that you're not tuning in listening for the mistakes that I make that you're listening for what it is that God has for you to receive. We're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 32 to 38. Today, we opened up with a song, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. And as I shared with those little kiddos, I wonder if we really know what the word adore means. I want to share just a, I don't do a lot of stories, because I think oftentimes that it can become about how funny I can be or how cute I can tell a story and you guys get home and you remember the story and you don't remember the word. And so that's why I minimize the number of stories that I tell. But this past week in uh, the class that I teach over at the Christian school on Wednesdays, um, we're coming to the end of the semester and I give my students a project. And I give them several questions and one of the questions that I ask them in this apologetics class is describe something that you learned about apologetics in this class this semester. And one of the students in my seventh period class stood up and as she was going through her presentation she came to that question and she stopped and she looked over at me and she said, Mr. Kelly, I just wanted to tell you that I'm thankful. She goes, because what I learned about apologetics is I learned what apologetics means. She said, I've taken several apologetics courses here at the school and nobody's ever actually explained or defined what apologetics is. And every week I would start off the class having them go over a couple of scripture verses and then they would take a quiz and one of the things would be about what does the word apologetics mean? And it comes from ap, which means away, and logos, which is word or speech. And in the classical Greek and also in the biblical Greek, an apology, ap, Lology, logos, comes from the word logos, is speech or word. It means to give a defense for something. It doesn't mean to say, Deborah, I'm really sorry that I'm a Christian. That's not what apologetics is. We're not giving an apology. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that I'm a Christian because I'm not sorry. It's to give an offense, to be prepared to give a defense for what it is that we believe and to do it with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. So I mention that only because when we talk about adoration, we talk about adoring things. Oh, I just adore puppies. I just adore this or I adore that. It comes from the Latin word adorare, and excuse me if I don't have a Latin accent because I'm not Latin. So adorare, and it means worthy of divine worship. That's what the word meant originally. And see, what we do is we take things that had a, an original meaning, and then today we reinvent what that means. I was going through some Christmas music this week, and I was trying to find, you know, put a playlist together, and I came across a group, and they had a song that was called, What Christmas Means to Me. And I just thought, that's horrible. What a horrible idea that someone wants to reinvent what Christmas means, but that's what we do. Maybe not us in this room, maybe not believers, the faithful in Christ, but as a nation, as a culture, see, you can't go out and you really can't sing Christmas songs that adore Christ Jesus. 
Those aren't the popular ones today. They become the ones that have to do with what Christmas means to me. It means about families getting together. Not a bad thing, but that's not what it's about. It's about adoration. It's about divine worship, adorare. So today, I prayed to God all this week as I was preparing the sermon, is that when you leave here today, is that you have an understanding of what it means to adore Christ. And when you sing that song or you hear it on the radio, Oh, come let us adore him, that you're not equating it with the adoration that you have for puppies. The adoration that you have for your favorite TV show or your favorite channel on cable or whatever it is. That it has to do with worthy of divine worship. And that's God in Christ Jesus alone. John 7, 32 to 38. I'm going to read through these and as we go through them, I'm going to do what I do and I'm going to preach the word. In verse 32, it says, I'm reading from the HCSB. If your version's a little bit different, that's okay. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. They sent temple police to arrest him. I want you to turn back to the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jews were trying to kill him. Jesus didn't want to travel there because the Jews were trying to kill him. So as you think about it, we just read, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Why did they want to arrest him? Well, you can go back in John's Gospel, you can go back to chapter 2, and Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes in and he overturns the money changers' tables, and he drives everyone out. And the questions that the religious authorities had for Jesus is by, what authority do you do these things? What authority do you have, Jesus, son of Joseph, what authority do you have to do these things? As it turns out, you can read in Mark eleven eighteen the same story of Jesus cleansing the temple, as it says in Mark, it doesn't specifically say it in John's Gospel, but in Mark 11:18 we find out, it says that from that time on, they tried to kill Jesus. So what's the point? Well, the point is, as you can see it up there on the screen, is that fear drove the Pharisees. It doesn't just drive the Pharisees, folks. It doesn't just drive the Pharisees. It's what drives us. And it shouldn't. See, because you can have something that's your engine, the thing that drives you, can either be Christ or it can be fear. And as you see, if you've read through the New Testament, things didn't end well for the Pharisees. The question, the root issue, is that we have a problem with authority, and we always have, from the very beginning. If you wonder whether or not that's true, before sin had ever entered into the world, you can go back and read in Genesis chapter 3, autonomy, a desire, conversation with the serpent. They saw, she saw that the fruit was desirable, that it was appealing, good for obtaining wisdom, independence from God, 
You can be like God. Well, the reality is, is that we've already been created in the image and the likeness of God, haven't we? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. He spoke this entire universe, all of the galaxy, the entire cosmos, into creation to give us a place to dwell with our Creator. He made us, Genesis 1, 26, 27, tells us, in the image and the likeness of God, to be relational. And the problem, the original sin is, is that we had a problem with authority. Goes on in chapter 7 to say that Jesus' brothers in verse 3 says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works. No one that does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If Jesus' brothers knew, and they did, that the Jews are trying to kill him, why do you think Jesus' brothers wanted to send him to the place where the Jews were for the Feast of Tabernacles? Why do you think? Because they wanted him to die. Jesus' brothers despised him. He's the greater Joseph. Do you all remember back in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph? Joseph was a man that he had a dream. Actually, he had two. One was these... Uh, sheaves of wheat, and they were bowing down to another, and it turns out he tells his brothers his dreams, and they're like, oh, so you want to rule over us? That's what you want to do? And he tells them another story about how the sun and the moon and the stars, that they all bowed down to him. And his brothers got angry. See, because it had to do with authority. We don't want to bow down to you. I don't really want anybody to have authority over me in my life. I don't. I do. Because if you don't, see, you've got a problem with Jesus because that's the whole reason why he came. Do you want to reign over us, Jesus? I want you to fast forward in chapter 7 to verse 14. It says, When the festival was already half over, Jesus went to the temple complex and began to teach. And the Jews were amazed. Amazed! and said, how does he know the scriptures since he's never been trained? He's not undergone formal training. He hasn't jumped through the right hoops. Who does this guy think he is? It's amazing. At the same time, it's disgusting. We're perplexed, and we don't really know how to feel about it. See, Jesus causes division in people. He causes division in culture. He causes division in humanity. Some people want to believe him and they want to follow him and other people want to kill him. And we just don't know what to do. Jesus answered them. He said, my teaching isn't mine in verse 16, but it's from the one who sent me. That's the father. I want you to fast forward. We're going to look at verse uh, 28 here. As he was temp teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I'm from. Yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Then, here's the response, they tried to seize him. See, Jesus tells the truth through that divine authority that he has. Genesis 49.10, the prophecy of Judah, is that when Shiloh comes, the one to whom all tribute and authority belongs, that's Jesus. He's going to come through the tribe of Judah. Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. He came from the lineage of David. He's born of a virgin, just as Isaiah had prophesied. 
They tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because it was in his hour. However, many from the crowd believed in him. Actually, it's faith. Pistuo, they had faith. See, you can believe and not have faith. There's a difference. James tells us that you can believe. The demons even believe and they tremble, but it doesn't mean that they surrender their lives to him. I don't want you to have belief in Jesus Christ. The reason why the word is preached today is so that you will adore him, and the only way that you can adore Jesus is through faith. It's a gift. It's not mental assent. It's not a decision that you make in and of yourself. It's one that Jesus, the gift of God, Ephesians tells us, not by works, so that no one, no one, no one can boast. You can't boast about it. You can't say, like Lee Strobel in the beginning, I sat down, I weighed all the evidence, and I came to the verdict. No, you didn't, Lee. You didn't come to the verdict. If you have faith in Christ, he may have worked in and through those circumstances and your investigative journalism background, but that is a gift from God that if you have it, it came from him. That's it. However, many in the crowd believed in him. They had faith in him. And said, when Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? What kind of signs has he done? Well, in the book of John, in chapter 2, he turned water to wine. That's a miracle. Chapter 4, he heals an official's son. That's a miracle. Chapter 5, he heals a paralytic. That's a miracle. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people simply by giving thanks to the Father and multiplies food that shouldn't feed more than a handful of people to feed 15,000 people. It says five, but oftentimes they're just, when they did a census or they did numbers, it just referred to men. And it was probably 15 to 20, maybe even 30,000 people. I've heard people say, well, what Jesus really did there is he taught people how to share. That everybody really had loaves and fish in their pockets. Let's dismiss the miracle of God and say he just taught people he wants us to be kind and share with one another. I don't think so. But see, the real miracle is, is that Jesus clean, cleansed the temple because it's the house of God. That's the real miracle. Is he cleanses the hearts of those who have faith. And the response was is that people wanted to kill him. So in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. What things? Some wanted to seize him. Some believed in him. Some had faith. Heard them muttering these things about him. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. Fear drove the Pharisees. I just want you all to know that adoration, which is the point of today, adoration it doesn't look like fear. Adoration does not look like fear. I'm going to give you a second to write that down. As we said, fear started in the garden. Do you all remember the story? They ate the fruit, then they heard God walking in the garden, and what did they do? They hid because they were what? They were naked and afraid. Naked and afraid. They were shameful because they did exactly what God warned Adam not to do. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation 21. Or if you just want to listen, I'm going to read it. 
Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 5 through 8. See, fear is a terrible thing because it makes cowards of us. And if you think, well, that's not so bad. It's not so bad to be a coward. Listen to what God's word has to say. Revelation 21.5 Then the one seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty, hang on to that, I'll give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And in verse 8, but, but, the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you're saying fear isn't such a bad thing, you might want to think about that. Adoration doesn't look like fear. Let's turn back to John chapter 7, verse 33. Then Jesus said, I'm only going to be with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. Love drove the Savior. See, if fear's the thing that drove the Pharisees, love is the thing that drove the Savior. Like I said earlier, we throw around words like love and adorable until there's absolutely no distinction or difference between what they originally meant and what they're supposed to mean and what we do to them. There's no difference between loving a Twinkie and loving Jesus. There's no difference between loving baked goods or puppies and our love for Jesus. Shouldn't it be different? When I was courting my wife... Christine, I never once said to her while we were courting, I never said I love you. Never once. Because it's a word that I reserve for my adoration of God. And the day that we were married, I told her for the first time, I said, I love you. You are God's gift to me, and I will treasure you all the days of my life. What do your words and how you use them say about your relationship with God? Do you adore him the same that you adore Twinkies? Shared with those kids just a moment ago, and I hope you were listening, from Mark, this, the parable of the harvest. It's not a parable about a sower. It's not a parable about the seed. It's a parable about a harvest. And there's one category of Christian and when you examine your lives, are you producing a harvest? I didn't hear anyone in here say no. That would be a little awkward, wouldn't it? I'm not, pastor. I wish I were. Let's be honest with ourselves. Are you? Are you producing a harvest? 30, 60, 100 times that which is sown. Love drove the Savior so what does adoration look like? It looks like the life of Christ. Adoration looks like the life of Christ. I could spend an entire sermon series for the entire year of 2019 preaching just on this one point. But we're going to move on to verse 34. We can't get there. 
verse 34 says, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. As I was studying, preparing this week, it just jumped literally off the page and hit me square smack dab between my forehead, right in the eyes. Do y'all realize that we can't get there? Have you come to that realization that you could have never gotten to the place of faith and eternal life in Christ on your own? You can't. We can't. It's impossible. I think when we really come to grips with that, that our appreciation, which is such a horrible and lacking word, our appreciation, our adoration for Christ is magnified. We can't get there. Several months ago, Christine and I, we were trying to find something on TV to watch, and we came across this TV show, and it had to do with these guys something about Oak Island, a treasure of Oak Island, the hidden treasure of Oak Island, whatever it is. doesn't really matter. You don't have to walk out of here hanging on to that. But there are these brothers that have invested years of their lives trying to find this treasure that they believe is buried somewhere on this island. I can't remember the specifics, if it was the Civil War, if it was Spanish... Uh, if it was the, the Spanish explorers who their ships wrecked, I can't remember the specifics, but there's this huge treasure that they believe is there. Millions and millions of dollars have gone into it to try to find this treasure. And you know what they've found so far? Years and years and years. Well before the show ever started, and I think they're on season five or six or whatever it is, and I was reading through, just trying to make sure I kind of had everything lined up, and they said that they found a brooch. <laughs> Woohoo! I don't know what that brooch is like, but I guarantee it's not worth all the money that they put into that thing. It's not. And I wonder in our lives, what is it that we, we sit there and we laugh at the treasure hunters. Oh, how foolish to take all of your energy and your effort and everything that you've got and to sink it into something that's just going to go up and it's going to be burned away like chaff. And then pause for a second and then turn that around and examine your own lives. What are we investing in? In Matthew 18, to 45, Jesus tells another parable, a couple of stories, about a great treasure that's found and a pearl of great value, saying that when those things were found, that the person or the people who found them, that they sold everything that they had. Everything! It wasn't like they said, well, I'm going to keep the stuff I have in my storage unit and I'll sell everything else. They sold everything. And the reason why Jesus uses those specific words is because that's what he's worth. Everything. He's worth everything that you have. And that when you truly adore him, everything that you have goes back into the worship and praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, then who are you? And what are you doing? Are you just playing church? Are you just playing religion? Are you just playing the contemporary Christian card? Well, I've got a fish on my car, Pastor. When Easter comes, I put the cross in my front yard. When Christmas comes, you know, we put up a tree and lights and everything. So do the pagans who live next door to you. What's the difference? 
2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Paul wrote that, and I think he wanted people not to be angry with him, but he wanted us to take a, stop, take a pause and to do an honest assessment of our lives and to ask, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. And if we're not, then we have an opportunity to respond. Because as you look at our mission statement, I hope you all have begun to kind of absorb that and memorize our mission statement. Our mission is Poetry Baptist Church, and if you know it, you can say it along with me, is to pursue, win, disciple, the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for God's glory. To be deluded means that you're deluded. It means that you're, you're caught up in something you don't, you're completely unaware. It's the person that has the big plank in their eye. They've got a blind spot. And they don't know. And as a brother or sister in Christ, our job is to come up and we're supposed to point out and say, hey, one of the pastors at my last church said, if someone approaches me and says, hey, dummy, you realize that you missed that one. He says, I'm probably not going to respond real well. But if someone walks up and says, hey, pastor, I just wanted to share something with you that I don't know, this may be a blind spot for you. And he said, and if someone approaches me with that, then they're showing me grace. Is they're saying, you may not be aware of something. And he says, and when someone approaches me in that manner and fashion, he goes, then I receive it. I receive it from my brother or my sister. Do you have the courage and the boldness to approach people and say, hey, I just wanted to point something out. And we do it with gentleness and respect. Is to point something out to folks. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. See, we can't get there. Adoration flows from realizing our inability. Adoration flows from realizing our inability. When you really realize that, when that comes to a full realization in our lives, then adoration is the result. Verse 35. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion and teach the Greeks, does he? How atrocious. What an abominable idea. It's an abomination, the idea that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would go to the Greeks. Why? Why? Because we forget the mission. The Pharisees forgot the mission. See, before they were even a nation, before Israel was even a nation, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob's other name was Israel. So two generations before Israel was even a man that a nation would be named after through the patriarchs, his sons, God blessed Abraham. And he said in Genesis chapter 12, he said, Abraham, go to a land I will show you. And then in verse 4 it says, and Abraham went. That's faith. But along the way, God made a promise to him. And he said, through you, Abram, he's not even Abraham yet, all the families, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Didn't just mean genetically through his descendants. He meant through his children. Those who would model Abraham's faith. That when God says, bud go, Bud doesn't stop and say, God, I need a sign. God, I need you. I'm going to fleece you, God. 
You know, if you, could, if you could get everything wet and then leave this dry, or if you could leave, make this wet and leave everything else, then, then I'll really know. God, is it really your will that I, that I stay in a, in a monogamous relationship within the context of my marriage? Let me pray about that. You don't need to pray about that. It's in the Word. One man, one woman. That's how he created it. Young people, if you're asking the question, God, is it okay that I date someone who's not a believer? No, it's not. You don't have to pray about things that God has already spoken into. We forget the mission. He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion. See, we make our lives about making money, about paying bills. That becomes the mission. Keeping our kids happy. Make sure they've got all the latest and greatest toys and apps and the most recent version of the iPhone or Samsung or whatever. Make sure they got a tablet. Make sure they got something. We want to make sure that we make the mission of our lives to impress the boss, right? Impress the boss. Who doesn't really care? A lot of times. Some do. That was a little harsh. Some bosses care. But the one that really cares, there's no one who ever went to a cross for you except for Jesus. Impress him. Give him your life. See, we enslave ourselves by our choices and the consequences that come from them. In Luke 4.18, Jesus is speaking. He says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. That's why Jesus came, to set us free. And yet, we give our lives to other things. We forget the mission. Genesis 12, 3, I already spoke on. In Exodus 19, 6, the Israelites, God had said, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole reason why God called them out and set them apart as holy was so that they could fulfill God's mission. So that they could redeem all of the other nations. How'd that work out? Not so well. Not so well. In Isaiah 49, 6, it's talking about the servant of the Lord, and it says, it's too small a thing for you to only redeem the Jews, the Israelites, but you will also be for me a light to the Gentiles. That's in the Old Testament in Isaiah. And the, when it comes to Jesus in the New Testament, they're sitting here in this verse 35, and they're saying, he's not going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, is he? Give, somebody give me a bucket. He's not going to go. Where, where, where could he possibly? See, because we're not going there. The only place he could possibly go is into the dispersion, where all of those pseudo-Jews are. They're not real Jews. They're not here. They didn't come back during the, after the building of the second temple because this is where the real Jews live. We're all here at the temple. Those are all pseudo-Jews. The Samaritans, they don't know what they're doing. They're worshiping all kinds of crazy stuff. Jesus isn't going out there, is he? That's an abomination. They forgot the mission. Adoration realizes the mission. So if you're going to sing, Oh, come, let us adore him, then you better know the mission of God. And your life had better be aligned with that mission. It had better be fulfilling that mission 
To be a blessing to all the peoples, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes on earth. Does that mean that you personally have to go to every family, every tribe on earth? No. And that's where people check out. They say, well, there's no way I could possibly do that. There's no way. Why don't you start with one? Start with one family. And maybe in your blessing, that one family, that maybe those people become missionaries. And then they end up at some country in the world, and then they end up blessing a hundred or a thousand families. And then it's, you're fulfilling God's promise through Abraham. Through you, Abraham, the faithful, those who I say go, and they go. Go, Abraham went, Abram went, and they go. They don't stop until their life is over. There's no retirement for Christians. Adoration realizes the mission. Nothing replaces genuine faith. Nothing replaces genuine faith. Verse 36, it says, What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. These are the, these are the sharpest guys. These are the MIT and the Harvard. You know, these are the Ivy League scholars of the day. Cutting edge. These are the geniuses. The Mensa Award winners. And when Jesus speaks, they have no clue. What, what is this? We're all going to scratch our heads. What is this? You'll look for me, and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. See, they didn't get it. Nothing replaces genuine faith. Israel's history was defined by adoption. Y'all realize that? They were adopted by God. And then in return, they adopted all the practices of the nations around them. And I just wonder, I wonder, when we look at that and we read through the Old Testament, is there anything that really distinguishes us from a lost culture and nation and people around us? Is there? See, it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, man, they really missed it. Defined by adoption... You go to the book of Judges and you can sum it up by saying in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Is that so different from us? If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings, I think another verse that sums it up really well. 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings 14, I'm going to read verse 24. So you can listen, you can turn, however you want to do it. 1 Kings 14, 24. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. They imitated all the abominations of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. See, it's not bad enough just to adopt their practices but we're actually going to get so far off that the relationship that we're supposed to have that God ordained between a man and a woman, that we're even going to mess that up. We're going to turn it into where we're actually going to have these things available at the temple. So when you come to bring your sacrifices to honor God, you can pay somebody and you can go and do something that's an abomination to God. How do we get there? 
They imitated all the abominations of the nations, the Lord. See, we don't just adopt those things, is that we allow them to control the culture and the lives around us. At what point do we say enough is enough? They should have known. They had God's word. They were as stewards of God's word. They had it memorized. Right? These guys spent time memorizing scripture. They knew it backwards and forwards. And then when Jesus came and he's standing in front of them, they completely miss it. Their faith wasn't in God. Their faith was in their genealogy and their traditions, the oral traditions, and their security and their stability. We talked about this on Wednesday night and pastor's friends right here. See, the real problem we talked about just a moment ago is with authority. Jesus came and he kind of turned everything up on its head. The religious leaders, they were like, we got it good. We got a good life. People respect us. We're in charge. We kind of run all the religious stuff. And then Jesus is coming along and he say, whoever wants to be the greatest needs to be the servant of all. Whoa! Hold up, Jesus. That's a little crazy. That's a little nuts. It's a little nuts. And that's exactly what he did. The night that he was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet. Then he went out to pray and he said to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then he allowed himself to be taken in chains, scourged, beaten, and he went to a cross. For you. For you. For you. For you. For us. Adoration seeks no substitute. Adoration seeks no substitute. Verse 37 says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone, he doesn't say if anyone who's a Jew, if anyone has the right genealogy, if anyone's got the right pedigree, he says, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. If anyone. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're someone who's thirsty. Maybe you've chased after a lot of different things in your life and you found everything to be lacking, everything to be wanting, Never, never truly finding satisfaction. And that's who Jesus is talking to. Every single one of us. Because there's nothing that can fill the void. That God void in our lives. Nothing. We must respond with obedience. See, everybody responds. If you look at Matthew 12.30, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, there's nobody who's unaffiliated. There are people out there that say, I'm agnostic. I really just haven't made up my mind yet. Yes, you have. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's not when you came out of your mother's womb and you did the first selfish thing. You were conceived in sin. Conceived in sin. There's nobody who's neutral. But do we really respond with obedient faith? He gives us an offer 
to respond in obedience. I don't know if you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but he's got a book. He was a pastor in Nazi Germany, a dissident. He refused to accept Hitler's rule and reign because he understood that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king. When Hitler told all of the pastors, stop preaching or you're going to be executed, you're going to be thrown in jail, Bonhoeffer said, okay, I'm going to keep doing it. And he did. And he got thrown into a POW camp. And as history tells us, the story goes is that Bonhoeffer, one day he was taken, stripped, naked, taken up to the gallows, and he was strung by a wire by his neck. And all he had to do was renounce Christ. But he didn't. I want you to know that because when Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, see, it would be one thing if somebody wrote this and then the end of their life turned out to be completely different. And they said, oh, I get to win the lottery? I hit the super lotto and I get $20 billion? You know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to be a pastor anymore. I'm going to be like MC Hammer. I'm going to be like Puff Daddy. I'm going to be like whoever the new people are that I know nothing about. My 80s references there. Here's what, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say. When Jesus demanded voluntary poverty of the rich young man, the young man knew that his only choices were obedience and disobedience. When Levi was called from tax collecting and Peter from his nets, there was no doubt Jesus was serious about those calls. They were supposed to leave everything and follow him. Only one thing was demanded in each of these cases. They're entrusting themselves to the word of Jesus Christ, who is the word. Believing it to be stronger foundation than all the securities of the world. Jesus' call broke through all of this and mandated obedience. It was God's own word. Simple obedience was required. If Jesus Christ were to speak that way to one of us today, through the Holy Scripture, then we would probably argue Jesus is making a specific commandment. That's true. But when Jesus commands, then I should know he never demands legalistic obedience. Instead, he has only one exception. Expectation of me, namely that I believe. This is what we would say. My faith, however, is not tied to poverty or wealth. On the contrary, in faith, I can be both rich and poor. The main concern is not whether or not I have any worldly goods but that I should possess goods as if I did not possess them, and inwardly I should be free of them. I should not set my heart on my possessions. That's what we would say. Then Jesus says, sell your possessions, but what he really means, what he really means is that it's not important if you actually do this literally, outwardly. That's not important. You're free to keep your possessions, but have them as if you did not have them. Do not set your heart on your possessions. Our obedience to Jesus' word would then consist in our rejecting simple obedience as legalistic doctrine. This is the difference between us and the rich young man. In his sadness, the rich young man, he's not able to calm himself by saying to himself, in spite of Jesus' word, I want to remain rich, but I will become inwardly free from my riches and comfort, my inadequacy with the forgiveness of sins, and be in communion with Jesus by faith. Instead, 
In honesty, he went away sadly. And in rejecting obedience, he lost his chance to have faith. The young man was sincere in going away. He parted from Jesus. And in this sincerity, surely he had more promise than a false communion with Jesus based on disobedience. The young man was sincere in his parting from Jesus. But by the way we argue, we distance ourselves fundamentally from the biblical hearer of Jesus' words. If Jesus said, leave everything behind and follow me, leave your possessions, your family, your people, your father's house, then the biblical hearer knew that the only answer to this call was simple obedience. Because the promise of community with Jesus is given in obedience. But we would say, Jesus' call is to be taken absolutely seriously, but true obedience consists of my staying in my profession, staying in my family and serving in there in true inner freedom. Thus Jesus would call, come out! But we would understand that he actually meant stay in. Of course, as one who has outwardly come out, or Jesus would say, do not worry. But we would understand, of course we should worry and work for our families and ourselves. Anything else would be irresponsible. But inwardly, we should be free of such worry. Jesus would say, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. But we would understand it precisely in fighting and striking back, the genuine fraternal love grows large. Jesus would say, strive first for the kingdom of God. We would understand, of course, we should first strive for all sorts of other things. How else would we survive? What he really meant is that what the final inner willingness to invest everything for the kingdom of God. And here's the point. Everywhere it is the same. The deliberate avoidance of simple, literal obedience. Adoration is simple, literal obedience. Adoration is simple, literal obedience. In our last verse for today, verse 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. I'm going to read that one more time. Listen, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Disciples will live Christ. Will. It's not you might. It's not I'm in the process of getting there. If you are a faithful follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, you will live Christ. He says that you will have streams of living water flow from deep within. See, because it's not you. It's him. And it's the power of the Spirit. If you have been born of faith through the Spirit of God, then he resides inside of you. There's nothing else. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need more online courses. You don't need to get more familiar with your Bible, though you should. But you don't need those things because you already have everything that you need. You will have streams of living water flowing from you. Examine yourselves and see whether or not you're in the faith. Is that true? Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is God's word. Through Moses to the nation of Israel, starting in verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, Israel even took that, the beautiful command, and they turned it into religious garbage. Got to dress the right way. Got to have a phylactery on my forehead. Got to have a certain number of tassels. The, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, all of the religious elite, they had all that stuff. But see, adoration is an action word. All throughout Deuteronomy, all throughout Scripture, action words. Listen, hear, write, love. Contrast that with Jeremiah 17.1. Sin is written with an iron stylus engraved with a diamond point on the tablet of their hearts. Adoration is active faith in Christ. Do you call yourself a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? That's not really what's important. What's important is, does he call you a daughter or a son? Nicodemus went to Jesus at night out of fear. And Jesus said that you have to be born again. In the Gospel of John, it says, not by human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Have you been born of God? See, because this season, as we dive into Advent, the arrival of our Savior and anticipate his second coming, you can't really adore him if you don't know him. And it's not enough just to know him. The demons believe and shudder. Do you have faith in him? Is there a wellspring of life that's coming forth from your life that's producing an abundant harvest 30, 60, 100 times that which has been sown.